Hello, welcome back to another week of the Multifaceted Athlete. Today, we have another in the February Eating Disorder series. If this is the first episode in the series you're listening to, we will talk about eating disorders, disordered eating, anything like that. If you find that hard to listen to, maybe skip this episode. And this month, I will be releasing stories throughout the month of February from those who have struggled with eating disorders. And I created this series to hopefully create more awareness and encourage others to share their stories. The series started with episode 101, which is my own story. It will conclude with episode 110 as of now. And today you will hear from Allie. Allie joined me on the podcast to share her story. And she is another runner, also a run coach and fellow Coloradan. So very excited to share her story with you. Enjoy another episode. I hope you're finding this series helpful. As always, reach out if you'd like to chat, give feedback, anything like that. But for now, enjoy my chat with Allie. All right, welcome back to another week of our February Eating Disorders series. Uh, As the title suggests, and if you somehow skip the intro, we will be talking about eating disorders, disordered eating. So if that is hard for you to listen to, you might want to skip this one. Uh, Trigger warning. (laughs) But today, I will be chatting with Allie, and she'll be sharing her story. So Allie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kelly. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. So for the listeners... Can you tell them a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to come on and share your story? Yeah. So um, as Kelly said, my name's Allie. Uh, Full name, I go Allie Ray Pesta. Um, And I always start with at the core of who I am is empowerment. I think with everything that I do, my purpose is really to empower others, whether that means empowering them that their purpose is so much more than the shape and size of their body or empowering someone to not feel alone or empowering someone to feel seen and heard and known and loved. Like everything that I do um, is, is through that lens of empowerment. And why I think that's so important is because I know what it's like to not feel that way. Um, And my journey specifically started about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, uh, when I was diagnosed with my eating disorder. Um, And I have since become a yoga teacher, a run coach, a published author, um, an eating disorder recovery coach. And I think through all of those lens um, and all of those different ways that it's come to fruition, that empowerment is still at the core. Um, But at the end of the day, I think the reason why we have to share is because there's so many people that have, whether that's similar stories or similar feelings of feeling not alone or not enough or feeling like their body isn't good enough or the messages we receive or feeling that they're too much, it's all wrapped up. And I think having these conversations is really just that start of that dialogue. Yeah, I agree. And I actually didn't know you were a run coach too, because I'm a run yes. coach. Yes. So. Yes. I love it. So cool. It's so cool. That's amazing. Yeah. I know. Usually for the listeners and for you, usually I do a little more research on who I'm having on. But uh, as you know, Allie, and as listeners, if they've been listening, know we're doing like nine interviews this month. So (laughs) a little bit different process than usual. Um, but yeah, so let's dive into your story. Where did it all begin? Or is there like a before the real issues happened, which I think is common. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, I talk a lot about this in my book and I think what's the hardest part about eating disorders or mental illness, it's like, it's not just one thing. It's not like, okay, you have this one thing and then the life changing event happens and now you're a different person. Um, I think there's so many little things that happened over time. I think from growing up and receiving, I was always the person that was like larger boned and was matured the fastest and just always felt like my body wasn't right. Wasn't normal. And I think too, I just had this innate drive to always want to be the best and be a perfectionist. Like everything had to be perfect, which also I had just this really anxious running mind all the time. And for me, exercise and running and moving my body was the one place where I felt quiet in my mind and felt like, okay, I could actually find a sense of peace. So I think those, I would say like are three big themes in my life of like feeling my body isn't normal, feeling like it's wrong. I experienced sexual assault at a very young age, which then made me not only feel like my body was wrong, but also that it wasn't mine. And then piled in with the idea of, okay, well, I have to be perfect. And that also extends with the way I treat my body and the way I treat movement. And then also the way that movement did serve as a way for me to feel at peace in my head. I think all those combined on top of the genetic component. So there's so many different factors. And for me, what it, when it really started to kind of get out of control, I would say was when I started tra- uh, training to go to the Naval Academy. So I was originally planning to oh. go to the Naval Academy. Um, I got into what's called the summer seminar, which is essentially like some degree, like an internship uh, for juniors uh, in high school. And then if you pass the summer seminar, then you, it's like you're guaranteed a spot in the Naval Academy, but it's a fast track. So I got into the summer seminar and I was training heavily for that, but quickly, very, very quickly, it turned from training to that to becoming all consuming. And there are definitely signs, I think, earlier than that. Um, outside of the training, I also started a diet with my mom when I was 16. It's called the 17 day diet. And the first phase was um, like basically eating just very, very minimal amounts. It was like an elimination diet to some degree, but then you were supposed to add things back in. I did not choose to add things back in. Um, and that obsession just became so, so, so much more um, rampant. But I think also at that same time, like that lock, lack of control over my body was really pervasive. And so I felt that, okay, if I can control my food and if I can control how much I'm moving my body and what I'm doing from my body, and if I can actually make my body not desirable um, because of some of those experiences, then I would have my control back. But in reality, mm-hmm. um, there's a chapter in my book that talks about, it, the first chapter is called Bodies and Prey and like feeling like my body was just not my own and then shifting to, okay, well, I'm in control, but realistically I wasn't in control. It was my eating disorder and the voice of my eating disorder that was actually starting to take control. Yeah. Wow. Did you grow up in Maryland near the Naval Academy? I did not. I actually grew up in Ohio, um, in Cleveland, okay. Ohio. Yeah. So nowhere near the Naval Academy, but we um, would go, I played travel volleyball and uh, J.O. So we'd go all over and we'd always go to Baltimore every year and we toured the Naval Academy. And I, I, there was just something so prestigious and I think like selflessness about it. And also yeah. just the drive that they had. I was like, wait, this is so cool. I didn't know 
enough about it at all. Um, but I just thought mm-hmm. that it was something that I really wanted to potentially pursue. But yeah, not originally from Maryland, though. The reason I asked is because I did grow up in Maryland. So that would have okay. been like a really funny coincidence. <laughs> yes, that would have been wild. Maryland yeah. to Colorado. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we all found our way here. I find it interesting. You're the third other woman I've talked to so far. And all of our stories, the issues started to get out of hand around the time when we were 16, which mm. I find really fascinating that it's you know we're all three from or not all four of us are from different places grew up differently but something about like junior year of high school um Mm. yeah have you encountered this is a deviation from your story have you encountered others who similarly had started struggling around junior year like the ones that I've encountered yeah that's a great question I I've experienced like people with all ages. Um, I went to two different treatment centers. Uh, one when I was when I was 17, and it was more much more adolescent, like 11 and 12. And then when I went to the adult center, when I took a semester off of college, it was definitely more adults. I do find though that there is something to be said about that high school time, and also that like 16, 17. I don't know exactly what it is. I can speak for for my experience. I think it was just like truly like your body really maturing and it just feeling like for me it felt really wrong and I feel Mm -hmm. like I was just like seen for my body and praised for my body in a ways that I didn't want the attention and so it was like I wanted to take control back over the way that I viewed my body um and not like my body just being for someone else and so I think that definitely impacted it but I also think like me at 16 was probably felt very fast paced for maybe some other uh, what I think maybe I should have been doing at 16. Um, I also think that there is something to be said about like also that identity piece and just like trying to figure out who we are and we're getting older and more mature. And then there's like junior year and you're thinking about college and there's just like that perfectionist um, mindset, I think also becomes a lot more prevalent and that drive of like, okay, well now you have to do college applications and like everything is just being watched with like a very meticulous eye, I think during Mm -hmm. that time. Um, So it's really unique though, that we all have had that kind of similar age timeframe. I do, I would wonder too, like, I don't know, even like societal, I mean, there's always stuff going around in regards to like trends and society things, but I do wonder too, like, I mean, there was like, that was like the slim fast age and all of that kind of stuff as well. Like the eat this, not that books. And so, (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's just so much there. And I think too, like also that's when there's just so much comparison. I mean, it happens in middle school, but I do think too, those ages is also a lot of like body comparison um, against other girls in, in your age group too. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it more, I... My theory was it was tied to like, like you're saying colleges and like, especially back then, probably still now it was, there was so much emphasis on like making the decision, what you're going to do for the rest of your life (laughs) at the end of high school, like where you're going to go is going to dictate what careers you can get and like your major and everything. So it's like very high stress. And the piece I just thought of is like junior and senior year, you had prom 
and mm. that I'm sure played a piece like trying I mean not everyone wants to be like prom queen but you know mm. that's kind of like what uh like in shows the young girls strive for and like that's what's celebrated kind of what you're saying and it's always like in the shows it's like the prettiest girl and you know they're usually mm. thin unfortunately <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah lots of factors that go into it uh, but something you mentioned going into a facility, how did that come about the lead up from when you first started struggling? Yeah. So for me, I and I want to preface this of like, I strive and stress this every time I, I speak or share is that like, there is no level of deserving of help. Um, if this is something that you feel is controlling your life in any way, like you deserve help. Um, I can speak to mind that, yes, it was more severe if you were to look at it like on paper, but that is on paper. That doesn't, we can't say that just because someone's vital signs or weight is more extreme on paper that their eating disorder is more extreme. So I just want to preface that of like, I'm speaking about my experiment or experience, but at the same time, like everyone is deserving of help. For me, I, um, it, my sort of took, it went rampant fast. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it was like kind of like within a year, um, it went from like very, I I mean, it was pretty bad, but then went to like at at my lowest, I'm not going to share numbers on weight, but it was a very low weight. My heart rate was at 26. Um, and my blood sugar was at 18. I was in Europe and I had what's called refeeding syndrome. So I went to Europe. Um, and at this point I was pretty sick and my parents at this time too, like eating disorders weren't really talked about 10 plus years ago. Um, I was actually the first person that my doctor diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, and it was just something that like no one really ever talked about. And so my parents were like, Oh, she's just being really healthy or like, yeah, she's getting a little obsessed about it, but she'll be fine. She'll get out of it. Just like she goes through phases. This is just another phase. She'll get out of it. And so they sent me to Europe and we're like, okay, she'll go to Europe. She'll come back. She'll eat the food and she'll be healed. And I actually had in Europe refeeding syndrome. So basically what, what refeeding syndrome is, is you're intaking a lot more. It happens to like very malnourished children is usually what, what we see it in. I mean, it can happen in other scenarios, but it's not very common. Um, but I was in, and taking a lot more than I previously was, and I was exercising a lot less. And so my legs swelled up about twice the size um, and I couldn't feel my legs. I could barely walk, couldn't bend my knees. And they're like, oh, it's just bad jet lag. Get back, go to the, go to the doctor's office. And then um, they took my vitals and were like, yeah, you got to go. So um, didn't want to admit. Um, there's actually a chapter in a book called Anorexic I Am Not. Um, because I literally looked at my doctor. I was like, I eat, I'm healthy. Like I'm the healthiest person. Look at the way I move my body. Like I'm so fit. I'm people compliment me all the time for my drive. Like, no, you guys are all wrong. You guys are just trying, you're jealous of how healthy I am. When in reality, I was the farthest thing from health. So once I went to, um, the hospital, I got in there and they were like, yeah, if you would have kept going on the way that you were, um, especially with the refeeding syndrome, you probably had about a week left to live. Um, that was a pretty harrowing diagnosis to get. Um, and that's when it kind of hit me like, shit, like I'm not, I'm not okay. 
Um, and so then I went to a treatment center in Cleveland. Um, but it was, I was 17 and I was with a lot of like 11 and 12 year olds and it just was not like a good fit. Um, and at that time, again, it wasn't really talked about. So we kind of just were like, all right, she's done. We're not, I convinced my parents, like take me out of treatment. Mm -hmm. I'm good. I've been here for a week. I'm fine. Um, and again, it's just all that trial and error and it's all that, the eating disorder fooling you. Um, and I think it's so hard because there's no equation to healing. There's no, just, there's no, what I call like recovering math equation of like, oh, if I do this and this, then I'm healed. That's not a thing, but it's hard Mm -hmm. because we focus so much, especially in the medical system of, okay, get to this weight restoration and you're good. When in reality, we haven't even touched, right? That's like the tip, 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 tip of the iceberg. We haven't touched all the layers underneath. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just eat my food and then I'll work out less. And for me, uh, eating wasn't as hard um, because I was so obsessed with getting back to exercise. And it was like, if you get to weight Mm. restoration, you can go exercise. And so I was like, I'll eat whatever you put in my face because I'm going to go exercise. But then it was just so cyclical. Um, Mm -hmm. So I ended up going back to, or I ended up having all summer and then went went to college. um, And within like a month of being at college, I was like, yeah, I, I can't do this. Um, and that was the first time that I said I need help versus mm-hmm. I was hospitalized again in, in May prior to college. And it was the first time that I was like, this is, this is not okay. I'm not going to be able to graduate college, let alone probably live my life, let alone live a life if I continue on this way. And so I ended up going to treatment for three and a half months and it was the best decision I've ever made. Um, it saved my life. It changed my life. And, um, I'm just so grateful too. I also want to recognize and also bring to the table that that's a very privileged thing to have is have the ability to have access to treatment and have access to hospitals and have access. It's very uncommon, unfortunately, um, to have all that access. So I just am also so grateful that I was able to have that access to be able to support me in getting where I'm at today. Yeah, that is a very brutal wake-up call. Yeah, for sure. Ooh. Um, what once you went to college, what made you realize that or like what flipped the switch that you decided you needed help? Cuz I think that's also a very common part of our stories. It's like there's a period where we're in denial, we don't want help. Someone can say they're concerned and it won't do anything. Until we're like, oh, something needs to change because I am not happy and I'm realizing it now. So what was your yeah. impetus? Yeah. Yeah. So that stages of change model, right? Where it's like, okay, that pre-contemplation, mm-hmm. contemplation, like actually acceptance and then actually wanting to go and change. For me, I think there were two big things. One, my eating disorders do run in my family on both my mom and dad's side. Um, and I mm-hmm. had a conversation with my aunt and she's like, Allison, I love you. Um, she lived in Columbus and she took me to lunch and she was like, I love you, but like, you're not okay. And for me, it was really hard to hear those words, but it was the words I needed to hear. But I was like, I'm class president or I was class president all four years. And like, I was, had all these big plans of all the things I was going to do. Like, I can't take time off college. Like that's a failure. And she paused me and she was like, no, the failure is just not even doing college at all. And if you continue on the way you continue on, 
that's a pretty real reality. And it was one of those just like tough love moments that, you know, my parents had said it, everyone had said it, but for some reason it clicked there. But when it, when her words really landed was um, the day before I was in a scholars program and we were having a field day and I could like barely, we were playing like capture the flag and I could barely run from like side to side because I was just so exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, I was trying to even walk to class and like walking across the oval. I went to Ohio state. So the oval, I like literally could not even breathe and everything just felt exhausting. And I just was like, fuck this. I don't want to keep doing this. So, and then I had the conversation with my aunt the next day. And then that afternoon I, uh, I call, called the Oval Park bench because that like, I vividly remember that phone call. I sat down, I called my mom and I was like, I can't do this. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, what, what can't you do? I was bawling my eyes out. I was like, I can't keep living yeah. like this. Like I need help. Um, and that definitely was one of those. I think it's that decision where you're like, yep. Okay. Like we're going to face it. It's so hard after that, but it's that moment of knowing and that desire to want to have a different life. And it was the first time that I realized like, oh, Ed, my user Ed, doesn't have to be a part of the ending to my story. Mm. I like that. That's really powerful, especially to realize so young, because I feel like you were what, 18, 19 at the time when you made that decision? Yeah. Yeah. I just turned, or I just, yeah, I was 18. Yeah. Cause I had spent my 18th birthday in the hospital or similarly around the hospital time. And then, yeah, I was, I was almost 19. Yeah. That's a big decision to make at that age. Um, what was then recovery like after that? With both within oh. the facility and outside. <laughs> Man, I'm like, how much time do we have? <laughs> I say, oh, first and foremost, like, and I tell this to every single person I work with or just in general, like, recovery is not linear. Yeah. Period. Like, it is the farthest thing from linear. It's not Lego blocks that you're stacking on one another. It's not math equations. It's just not linear. And in treatment, um, when I first went, I was just so motivated. And again, that perfectionist was like, I'm going to be the best at having a knee disorder. Now I'm going to be the best at recovering from a knee disorder. And what I thought being the best at recovering from a knee disorder looked like was not crying, not showing any emotion, just like literally giving advice to people. Like I was trying to be a therapist and give advice to these other women that were in the group when I'm like, I don't fucking know what I'm talking about. Why am I giving advice? What is this? And realizing like, wait, what are you doing? Um, again, I've realized that tough love is the, what I need. I need someone, um, I can fool myself. I can fool others. And sometimes I just need someone to just give me that brutal honesty. So my therapist in, we each had like our own therapist in in part of the treatment center and Asia is her name. And she mm-hmm. sat me down and was like, do you want to recover? And I was like, yeah, of course I want to recover. Don't you see me? Like I'm talking in group. I'm doing all the things. I'm eating my food. Yeah. I'm like, I'm doing great. Aren't I? And she literally looked at she goes, I don't think you want to recover. I was like, and this, this mode might not work on many people, but it worked on me. And I was like, at this point she knew what I kind of needed. And I was like, what, yeah. what do you mean? And she was like, Allison, you don't have to be the best at recovering. 
And if you continue to have all of these walls up and not actually let yourself feel any of this or even start to unpack your mind, and if you're just trying to put on this front day in and day out, you are never going to actually recover. And it was just one of those harrowing truths of like, yep. So the next day I just didn't say a word and sobbed my eyes out. And it was, you know, I, I grew up, I mean, it wasn't like, don't show your emotions, but just like be strong, get over it, push through. I was in sports my whole life. It was just, you just push through it. Like no pain, no gain, mental toughness, just work through it. And I was thinking recovery was going to be the same. Just, you just push through and then you're there. And it's like, you can't push through something if you don't actually go through something. Like you have to actually feel through it. You can't just be like, I'm going to chop down these rocks and now I'm healed. That's not how it works. You have to literally pick each boulder up one by one and then sit with the boulder and feel the boulder and figure out what, how the hell this boulder is impacting me to actually break it apart. And until I started to realize that recovery was just like, it was just going to be not possible. And Mm -hmm. I would say since then, you know, it's been so much ups and downs and so much non-linearity. But I would say probably within the past three years, especially the past two years and now like the past year, I'm like, I've never felt so at home with my body. And so like, I just, she just feels like my best friend. Um, I haven't been able to run for two years and I started running. I was eight. I, um, I've just been in and out of injury. I just had two hip surgeries and that has been the biggest blessing of my life because for once I I couldn't identify myself as like a mover and a runner. So I had to really understand like, okay, who am I at my core? Um, And I'd say the three years of the recovery has been really impactful from another therapist that I've been seeing for about three years now. And it was the first person that I think truly, like I needed ones that were very, needed therapists that were very much like eating disorder specific and focusing on the behaviors. But then I got to a point where I was like, I'm sick and tired of just talking about the behaviors because there's rooted things underneath it that if I don't address that it's just going to be just about the behaviors and it's like you have to actually understand the root causes to be able to actually continue to move forward so with her it was really just starting to understand and unpacking like everything that had happened all of my life that might have impacted the eating disorder um and I think writing my book has also been helpful um more than helpful been a life changer um and I'd say the last part of recovery too is just community. And I'd say that's probably why the past two years have been the most empowering because the people around me, they see me, they celebrate me. I've always felt like I was too much and they never make me feel like I'm too much. They celebrate my too muchness. They're like, we want more of you. We want all (laughs) of you. And it's just really helped me to kind of come into like my unique, I love to say like my unique weirdness and just really embrace who I am at my core Uh, and who I am at my core has nothing to do with the shape or size of my body. Yeah. And that is like the hardest thing to realize. I feel like, especially as you're growing up, going through like your twenties, are you still in your twenties? Yep. I am. Twenties were hard. (laughs) <laughs> 20s are hard. I'm, I'm at my near end of my 20s. We're almost at 30. That's what I so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like 28. So yeah, we're almost at 30. Yeah. Yeah. Early 20s, so hard. 
I think just like with everything we've been talking about through high school years, college years, and then you're thrust into the world and supposed to like yeah. figure out what you're going to do forever and pay for everything yourself and maybe live alone for the first time. And there's just a lot, a lot of change. Um, how did recovery affect your running until the most recent years when you haven't been able to run the time between? You, yeah, that one is like such a tough question and something that like, I don't know, it's so interesting to think about because I also think about how much growth I've had in the past two years and yes, I've run, but like here and there, but I haven't actually Mm -hmm. done like the way that I used to run four to five times a week for 20 plus years. No, that's exaggerating. 15 plus years. But anyways, um, I, it's definitely evolved over time and really been like, I'm running from a place of self-love from a place of celebration. But I also know that running can really get me back into places of, because I just love it. It's so Mm -hmm. easy to become addicted again and be like, I have to run. I'm going to cancel everything. Like running is what I worship. And I'm confident that all the work that I've done is going to impact once I start running again in a way that is supportive, is nourishing, is celebrating my body as my best friend. And I also think that's why I use the word recovery journey instead of like recovered, because I do think Mm -hmm. like this is the time when it's that 1% that I still need to be cognizant. I say I'm 99% recovered but I still need to be cognizant of that 1% of these situations of like, okay, cool. We're going to go into running. Maybe we decide to not go to that running group that they're constantly talking about numbers and pieces and that, because I'm just being protective over my recovery. And Mm -hmm. so I think for, for running, a lot of the runners I work with have had experience with like disordered eating or eating disorders. It's my favorite group to coach just because I get it. Um, and I think it's really about, you know, getting down to, to your why. Um, and I really encourage the runners I work with to spend time before they go for a run. Just like, why are you running today? What are you celebrating? And if your primary why is because you're really mad about the ice cream you ate last night or because your clothes are changing or maybe you grew out of a pair of running leggings that used to fit you, I'm going to challenge you to choose a different form of movement or choose rest. And we're going to come back Mm -hmm. because that's only going to perpetuate the association between running and changing the shape and size of your body. So I think, you know, there's so many different principles we can look at, but really getting down to the core of how are we using running as we relate to our body and to food. And if also it's like, oh, I'm running today so that I can go out with my friends and eat a burger tonight, which in the running community, we talk about that all the time of like, I earn my beer. Sorry, there's no beer to earn. There's no burger to earn. You can have a beer. (laughs) You can have a burger. You can have whatever you want at any time. You never have to earn your food. And so I think really getting and peeling back the layers and of course those thoughts are still going to come, but it's like, what's that primary why? And I'm hoping that over time, our primary why really shifts into that because it's like celebration and because we love to move our bodies in that way. And because running brings us joy and because running makes us feel more connected to ourselves and our body and all of the incredible things that running does 
and just mm-hmm. knowing that like it is that slippery slope and for me running is is my slippery slope and I just have to be cognizant of it yeah that is very self-aware of you which I imagine comes from years of working with therapists <laughs> and just going through <laughs> gotta this love therapy <laughs> gotta love therapy yes it's so helpful yeah. um but yeah I think that's a really good point about just like taking a pause and reflecting on whether it's if your sport's running, if it's something else that you associate with changing your body. Um, Cause I think for a lot of people it is running. That seems to be, you know, people want to lose weight. It's like, Oh, start running. <laughs> Even yep. though like you and I as coaches know, it's like running is so much more than that. And you know, yeah. 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 You could spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say like one other thing on that topic too, it, it is so much more than that. And I think it's also just like, it perpetuates that there needs to be a certain body shape or size to be a runner of like, Oh, yes. you can run if you lose X weight or if you look at this or thinner is faster, smaller is faster. And that's not always true. It's often not true because you're probably undernourishing. So you actually are depleting your body. So You actually probably are not faster. And if maybe you are, but it might be a false sense of fast, that's going to end up breaking and leading to stress fractures or leading to red S or leading to the multitude of things and complications that it can lead to. And so I just really want to also acknowledge that it also comes with unpacking and speaking up in the running community of like, Hey, why are we using that language? Hey, why are we making these comments? We are literally shaming people and we are literally stereotyping what a runner is supposed to look like. There is no look to a runner. There is no size to a runner. If you run, if you even run to your mailbox, you're a runner. Like if you Mm -hmm. run at all, you are a runner and we need to celebrate that. Not this is the shape and size of a runner or you run X distance and that makes you a runner. Like, nope, everyone belongs. I want to create spaces where everyone feels like they belong because everybody does deserve to be a runner and is a runner. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm really shocked that we haven't met before this, honestly, Um, because (laughs) so I lead some group runs and the impetus for that was like I've been to a couple Boulder group runs where like I got dropped because I don't run fast enough for my easy run. And it just like makes you feel so unwelcome. And obviously, I'm not the only one who feels that way. And I'm also like a pretty average runner (laughs) in the grand scheme of things. So I started a group run where like it's for people who run slower than 10 minute pace and we don't we don't care about pace we're there to like connect so uh Mm. yeah you would fit right in (laughs) I love this I love this yeah it's like everyone freaking belongs like also we're this isn't our full-time job we're not getting yeah we're not olympic we're not going to olympic trials like everyone needs to just calm down it's fine you don't need to post your run streaks or how many miles you ran Mm. just like run for this sake. That's what also I think too, that we just, I think has been a huge game changer for me in just recovery and life and everything is like doing things for the sake of doing them. Like Mm -hmm. remember as kids, that's why I use the word movement instead of exercise is because as kids growing up, we moved our bodies. We didn't say we're going to go exercise when we ran to to our friend's house where we played capture the flag or we went on a fun bike ride or we swung on the swing. We moved our bodies And I love the beauty and the freedom and the language of movement because it just gives you space to be able to move for the sake of moving. And you're running for the sake of running or writing for the sake of writing. It's not tied to the metric of, okay, it's only a run if I hit X pace or, oh, I'm it's only a qualified 
like written piece if it turns into a book. Like, no, just mm-hmm. do things for the sake of doing them. Because at the end of the day, like the metrics really don't matter. If they don't bring you joy and if you're so fixated on that, you're losing the whole purpose. And the whole purpose is truly enjoying every step of the way and enjoying the journey and being in the process rather than trying to achieve an X metric. And how I'm tying this back to recovery is because I think we get so fixated on, well, what does recovery look like? And there Mm, is no end picture of what recovery looks like. It's different for each person. And that's what's so beautiful about it is that we each can determine what recovery means for us. But the most beautiful part along the way is all of the different things, all of the little wins. Like I still celebrate last two nights ago, I made pasta with a friend that I'm like, three years ago, I I don't know if I would have done this. And like, it's just those little moments that you still get to celebrate them. No matter how far along you feel like, oh, I shouldn't be celebrating that because it's been 10 years. Like, no, celebrate the damn part of every single part of the journey. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really important just to reiterate the recovery looks different for everyone because just like you're saying, it's not like you reach a certain point or whatever we think it looks like and then you're suddenly quote unquote recovered. Because um, yeah. I personally think that like, I don't know if I could ever say I'm fully recovered because I'll always have like the thoughts, but like the thoughts mm-hmm. don't control me anymore, you know? Yeah. 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 Like the thoughts are right. Like the thoughts are there. I think they become, I like to think of it as like elevator music, right? Like they might still be there, but then they get quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. And for me, they're at the place where like, they're rare. Maybe they'll come up every once in a while. It depends on also though, like maybe when I start running again, they might be more present. But I Mm -hmm. think what you really touched on is what's so important is that do we engage with them or, you know, with like yoga teaching and meditation, it's really just, it's not that the thoughts, I think people think meditation is like, oh, I can't meditate. My brain's too, it goes too much. I have way too many thoughts. It's like, that's the purpose. Like, it's not that we're (laughs) supposed to get rid of our thoughts. It's you watch them go by like clouds. They come in, you notice, but you don't engage. You don't go down that rabbit hole. You don't respond with a behavior. They come in, And then you just gently let them watch and go away. And I think with all of this, and I think why, and this isn't to discount any other mental illnesses at all, but I just want to kind of put of, just put into perspective why I think sometimes recovering from an eating disorder can be really, really hard in why the thoughts often are still there, take a while for them to go away is because you can't not eat. You can't. Mm -hmm likely not move your body to some degree. I mean, you can, but like, you know, to some degree, we're going to have to face movement as well as our bodies, as well as food minimum three times a day, likely more for eating snacks. And so Mm -hmm. on an everyday basis, we're facing what our disorder is, but, and it's also what we need to heal is what we fear the most. So it's makes so much sense why the thoughts are still there and why they still come up is because imagine you have to face it every single day more than once a day (laughs) so it's just I think sometimes people are like well aren't you over it by now it's just food it's like it's not though yeah yeah that's one of my it used to annoy me so much yeah pumpkin has arrived for the listeners (laughs) so Uh, it would bother me he is uh when people would say something like 
you just need to eat more. And I'm like, if it was that fucking simple, I wouldn't be in this predicament right now. <laughs> you know? Literally. Literally. <laughs> it ain't that simple. I remember a, a high school teacher said to me, this is like about a month after I got out of the hospital and I had to eat based off of, I was on a very strict, like three meals, three snacks, time-based. And I, it was because I had to keep my heart at the right levels anyways yeah. and my blood sugar but it was uh it was during her class that I needed to eat and she prohibited food and I was like medically I need to eat at this time you wouldn't tell someone that needed to take medicine at that time that they weren't allowed to eat, take their medicine in your class yeah. right she's like no I was like, okay well this is what this is this is my medicine and she goes well didn't you just know like wouldn't you know working out four hours a day and eating what you're eating was going to do that? Like, how about you just have some balance in your life? And I'm just like, the ignorance, the ignorance. And it's because it's also so pervasive. Like diet culture is so pervasive. So much is just everywhere we look that people don't understand that like, this also does create disorders. And we all have, Mm -hmm. I think the whole world has some degree of disordered eating. Um, But it's just, it's, just wild when someone cannot understand what you're going through, the amount of ignorance it can create. Um, and I think it's just so important kind of going back to your original question when we first started talking of like the why is just that lens of empathy and also to just try to help others understand who might not get it in the hopes that maybe they become a bit more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that is a wild story. But it also is not surprising at the same time, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up with some um, more positive notes because you are you seem to be in a really good place. And I want to hear actually about your book. Tell me about your book. What made you want to write a book? And what is it called? So everyone can check it out. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's been such a cool journey. Um, so my memoir is called Beyond My Body. The subtitle mm-hmm. is Recovering from a Complex Eating Disorder, Reclaiming Movement, and Finding My Worth. Um, I always say at five is when I knew I wanted to write a book. I had no idea what I was going to write, but I just loved to write. It's the way I make sense of the world. I love words. I love writing. I love storytelling. I love learning about other people's stories. Um, It just helps me to kind of make sense of everything. And then when I was 17 in the hospital, my sister bought me a journal and was Mm -hmm. like, I think you should start writing again. And I was like, no, I don't want to do it because I hadn't written for so long because I had no thoughts in my head to write about. And one of my first journal entries was one day I'm going to write a book about this um, because of the reasons I shared from before, really just that I don't think I'm the only one that's gone through this and I want other people to feel Mm -hmm. seen and heard. And I also wanted to tell like a raw story of like, this is what it's like. And it's not just about, it's not as easy as just eat the food. It's not as easy as just stop running. It's not as easy as like, well, it's just food in your body. Like you should be over it by now. Um, And the more and more I would make sense of it in my mind and then start to share with others, it was like, whoa, I, I need to get this out. And so I started writing it, writing it, I would say, um, like sitting down and writing it in March of 2022. But I do think the story I shared earlier of like the Oval Park bench was when I say like I started writing my story because it was when I said 
I have agency over this and I know the ending and the ending's not going to have Ed in it. Um, and I ended up working with a public, like an indie publisher, um, a few editors. It's went through so many revisions, um, but it got, it was launched October 10th of this past year of 2023, um, on cool. world mental health day. So yeah, it's been amazing since I'm about, I think a little over like 500 copies sold. Um, Whoa. I'm in the process of recording an audiobook for it. Um, it just got into, if you're local to Colorado, it just got into Petals and Pages as well as Tattered Cover Bookstore, which I haven't officially announced that one yet, but, um, oh. yeah, I'll be doing an author event at Tattered Cover on February 23rd on a Friday. So if you're local to Colorado, mm-hmm. want to come check it out, please do. I'll be there with copies, sign them, all the things. Um, but you can buy it on Amazon, um, is like the primary place, but if you are local to Colorado, go get it at Tattered Cover or Petals, Petals and Pages. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always amazed at people who write books. Um, I'm not a gifted writer, so it's like very foreign to me to write that much. <laughs> like I can write short things, you know, but <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's so cool. I'll, I'll have to see if I'm thank around. You to come obviously I'm yes, local to Colorado so no convenience that'd be so cool <laughs> so cool yeah um is it the tattered cover downtown is that one still it's on there? Colfax I know one of them. yep okay uh the Perfect. one in uptown or not uptown the one by like the ballpark is closed but okay. it's their it's their flagship store on Colfax gotcha well I'll link all of this for the listeners, especially those who are local. We'll see if we can get a group going. Um, Yeah. Is there anything you want to leave the listeners with before we wrap up officially? I would just say like, just know you're not alone. Um, You deserve help. There's are so many resources out there. Um, And yeah, reach out. Please do. You can follow me on Instagram. I also do do one-on-one coaching. Um, Summertime, I lead yoga at the park. Uh, so then that's very much health at every size, body inclusive, uh, just come and flow and breathe and look at the sunset. Um, and I would love to just chat with any of you that if you have any questions or anything, I'm, I'm an open book. So happy to chat more and thank you so much for having me on here. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. And what's your Instagram for everyone? Yep. It's at Allie Ray Pesta, A-L-L-Y-R-A-E and then pasta, but with an E. I, when I first saw your handle, I thought it said pesto. <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah. It's pasta with an E or pesto with an A, whatever you want, yeah. but we're eating pasta pesto, all of the things. Pasta with pesto is so good. Exactly. So good. So good. Game changer. It is a game changer. Well, um, Allie, thank you so much for sharing your story and being so open and coming on the podcast today. I think this will be a really helpful episode. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate it. <laughs>